Now, last week, you remember, we started Proverbs chapter 27, and, you know, it was a, I, I think it was a great beginning to this chapter with a verse that, you know, deals with really the number one issue that you're going to run into with not only just lost people, but saved people too. And I told you last week that the whole message was kind of built around the, the, the greatest and the worst sin that a person could ever commit. And I know when you talk about the worst sin, we think of all the bad things that people can do. But, you know, in reality, the worst sin that man can ever commit is the sin of omission. The, not the things that we do, but the things that we don't do or the things that we put off through procrastination. For an unsaved man, we know that from last week is uh, putting off the day uh, of his salvation, the day that he trusted the Lord Jesus, he should trust the Lord Jesus Christ as his own personal Savior. For a saved man, it's putting off the calling of God in their life. And I know that, you know, the verse in Proverbs 27, 1, traditionally, as it's taught, and nothing wrong with that, it's always taught that it is dealing with, uh, you know, an unsaved person. And, and that is genuinely true. But if you've been in the ministry any length of time or you work with people, you know that God's people say no to God probably more than unsaved people do. It seems to be easier once we get saved that we can tell God no. It seems to be easier that once we get salvation and we're safe in the arms of Jesus, then we can tell him no thanks. And uh, that is a phenomenon that uh, you'll be faced with in dealing with people you know, all, all of your life. You know, in both cases, we talked about this last week, it's getting more and more of the world than it is getting more and more to the Lord. And we looked at two great examples found in the Bible on this, one in Acts chapter 8 and the other one in Acts, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 8, and the other one in Acts chapter 25 and then also in 26, carries over. In Exodus chapter 8, we saw Pharaoh and how that up against Moses and Moses delivering him the message of God, he, he gave the statement that most unsaved people and most saved people do when they're faced with the reality of God in their life. And he said, I'll do it tomorrow. Then we looked at Acts chapter 25 and 26, and we saw the second great example, and that was King Agrippa. And here Paul's up against King Agrippa, and he's really putting it to the old boy about uh, what God has done and what God is doing. And he doesn't spare any of the details, boy. He puts it right to him. And there again, how many times I'm sure God's men and women have sat in churches across this country, heard a message that pierced their heart, and they knew what they needed to do. Or an unsaved man or woman who knew they were lost and knew they needed God's salvation. But at the end, after the message touched their heart, and they know what they need to do, they walked out just like King Agrippa and said, almost. Almost got me, Lord. I almost did what I needed to do. And saved or lost, we find this happening, you know, in people's lives today. Uh, you know, and a great principle on, on, the, on the reality of life it is and how we saved or lost will in time, once we get to that point, we lose all touch with reality. You know, and having using the biblical principles in our lives, like we try to teach you here uh, in your life to bring you know, three absolutely crucial aspects into your life. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about it last week. The biblical principles will give you, first of all, 
in your life. It'll give you a, a perspective of life. It'll give you the ability to see the reality of what you're really dealing with based on all the smoke and mirrors and all of the things that life is cloaked with to hide the real identity of what you're up against. It'll give you insight into reality. Not just how something appears, but you'll see it as it really is. The second thing, we didn't really touch on these last week. I just mentioned them because I knew I was going to do it this week, is second thing in your life, it'll get, you give you a position in life. Where you're really at with the Lord and understanding how to position yourself against the world in any given situation you find yourself in. No greater example of that than last week than Paul before the Roman governors and the Roman kings and the priest and finally, you know, uh, King Agrippa. I mean, he's in, he's in, he's in chains. He's going to go to prison, but yet he, he positioned himself in such an incredible way to take that moment and captivate it for the Lord. And then, of course, the third thing is your purpose in life. Are you and I fulfilling what God saved us for? And, you know, the real reality question today for all of us is, what is our purpose in life as a Christian? Is it to amass all the things that we have and forget about the things of God? Or is it to forget about all of the things that we have and focus on amassing the things of God? The reality of the calling of God in your life. There was never a person, man, woman, never a person who ever got saved that God didn't call for something. There'll never be a time down through the history of Christianity or history of man that God, a person got saved and God didn't call them for something to do. That's never been the problem. The problem is man's never picked up the phone. He won't answer the call. And losing these three areas of your Christian life will result obviously in a disaster in your own personal life and, and very frankly in the life of your family or if you're a pastor in, in your church. And we've talked about that unbreakable chain of strongholds that go through a man's life or his family or generations of a family that in time will set them adrift from the Word of God and the reality of life into this great hodgepodge of mush called the Sea of Life. And today... We're going to look at the next couple of verses, four exact, uh, at verse 2, 3, 4, and 5. And we're going to talk about this, and we're going to look at this, and uh, I think there'll be some great principles here. And uh, we'll try to uh, get some things across and try to help you uh, in your own personal re relationship with the Lord. Now, let's start in verse 2. It says, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. A stone is heavy and the sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than them both. Weight is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Open rebuke is better than secret love. Caleb, good to have you back home. Would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the, on the service this morning? Now, verse 2 says, 
Let another man praise thee, and not his own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. Now again, doctrinally, as we look at this first verse here, this will be the a reference to the Antichrist. There's no question about that. In 2 Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, there's a whole discourse there about him going into the Holy Holies, sitting down and claiming to be God. In verse 11, it's very clear that this is what he does. He's, he's declaring to everybody how great he is and, and now that he is going to run the world. And, uh, but yet, as you look at that in an inspirational application, if there ever was a verse that is needed today with God's people, uh, it'll be this verse. Now, I know that, again, it goes without saying that all of these apply to an unsaved man. I get that. And, uh, you know, the only problem I have with that today, we probably don't have any unsaved people here today. And you already know that. So I'd rather come after you because this all fits to us as God's people. And, you know, so I want to I wanna talk about that. I don't get, you know, I, we talked about this Thursday night, uh, you know, how that, or last week, we talked about how that coming to church is a reality check for all of us. We go through the week, we hobnob in just a normal course of life with unsaved people. We have to deal with unpleasant circumstances. We, you know, it's a thing where you just get out into the world just because you have to work in it, you live in it. And if you're not careful and you're not focused on it, you know, it's easy to let that world rub off on you that, you know, when you come to church on Thursday night or you come to church on, 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 on Sunday morning, you need to get clean. Amen. You know, and if you haven't gotten clean before you got here is what you should have done, then that's okay. I'll wash you good this morning. No problem. Because uh, it's a thing where that's what the Word of God does. And churches are many things on many levels. I get it. But I want to tell you the number one purpose of the church for you and for me is our reality check. When you come here, I can't speak for every church out there, uh, but when you come here, you leave with a reality check. And I told you last week, that's why some people in churches, they only go once every four or five weeks, six, that's all the reality check they can stand. You know, you guys are here every week. There's seriously something wrong with you. I mean, you know, you, for you to take the, but you know, you know what the problem is? You like a reality check. Amen. Amen. To you, your relationship with God and the word of God is the most important thing. And you know what the world will do to you. Amen. If it hasn't already done it to you at some point in your life, you've seen it in the lives of others. And you don't want that to happen to you. So like it or not, we all have to get a reality check. And a reality check is a terrible thing to be faced with. I mean, nobody wants to deal with reality. I mean, we all like living in Egypt, a type of the world, and we all like that little house on the river of denial. <laughs> Christ had three basic characteristic qualities. I want to start with this, and then I'm going to work from here. What I want to do is I want to show all of us today, me included, how far we are from what we really think we are with God. Amen. We all just need a little, I need one today. Amen. I need one, I, you need one. You know, if I, hey, I guarantee you if I need one, you need one. Amen. And I dare need if I need one and you don't need one, you're still going to get one. So just, <laughs> but you know, there were three, and, and here again, when you study the Lord Jesus Christ, ah, oh, there's so many different levels. But fundamentally, reality-wise, there were three basic characteristics of Christ that he had, or really four. 
And the first one was the fact that he was a very humble individual. Humility was he, you know, there were times when he healed people and he told them not to go tell them that he did it. I mean, he was very humble in his approach to things. He didn't come down, you know, and kick the door in of Israel. No, he came, he came as a common man and was going to work his way through to the Messiahship. Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that he made himself of no reputation. You don't see him going around lauding the fact that he was God's son. You don't see him going around putting out on the side of his big bus as he made his tour through Jerusalem, God's son is here, the deity has finally showed up. He didn't do that. He made himself of no reputation. And then the Bible says also in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 that he, even, though, even though he was made in the likeness of men, he took the form of a servant. Now those three character qualities are the greatest character qualities that make us love him. We love him because he was humble and everything that he did. We love him because he made himself of no reputation and we love him because he made himself a servant. Yet, the fourth thing that I want you to see in spite of all of that, he was still a king. Now, that's, that's, that's quite a statement. You don't find many kings today who are humble. You don't find many kings today that don't make themselves of a great reputation. And you certainly don't find many kings or presidents who take the form of a servant. But the reality of that is you don't find many Christians that way either. And then the real, 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 real reality of that, you don't find many pastors that way either. You know, we as God's people, we want to skip the first three and go straight into the kingship. But there's a process in life, the Christian life, and it talks about the fact that we need to be humble in what we do. We need to work at no reputation for what we do, and we need to have the attitude of heart of a servant. You know, and later in the millennium, we get the kingship, Romans chapter 8. But right now in this life, John chapter 3, verse 30 is the rule of the day. He must increase, but I must increase. You know, Clint Eastwood is a great actor. And uh, everybody, you know, I've never met anybody that didn't like Clint Eastwood movies. I mean, you may not like, but just the way he portrays himself. He's, he's a tough guy, you know. He, he's always usually on the side of right, you know. And, uh, you know, and he starred in many action-packed movies for many years. But I think he's best known to anybody for his Dirty Harry series. And, you know, I just, I, I, when they're on, I watch them, you know. I, I saw them when they came out years, in the 70s, man. I mean, he's a really young dude back then. And, uh, you know, the thing I like about it, and I guess it's true, you know, of all, of all movies, is the fact that, uh, you know, they always take something and build the whole movie around it. And Dirty Harry movies put Smith & Wesson 44 Magnums on the Christmas list of everybody. <laughs> I mean, the 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world. And, you know, his, 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 all, every other cop in the movie carried a 38 or a 357. Not old Harry. He carried a 44 Magnum. That thing looked like a cannon. And, you know, in his movies, the best thing I like about it, I like this about all movies because I get great sermon material, is some of the great quotes that you find in these movies. 
And we always remember, you don't remember the name of the movie, but you remember the quote. How about, make my day? How many times have we said that to somebody? How about, do you feel lucky? Do you punk? <laughs> We've all said that to our kids. <laughs> One of my favorite lines, he said, he said ever, ever notice how once in a while you'll come across somebody you should have never messed with? Well, that was me. That's what he said in the movie. I like that. You know, I, I think uh, he said one time, he said, I've seen all the killing and all the murders and all the crime in this city. But you know what really takes the cake? Putting ketchup on a hot dog. <laughs> now, that's a great one. One of my favorite is, your mouthwash ain't making it. <laughs> that was a good one. But none of those fit the sermon today. But the one quote that he does, and you're probably, you smart guys now, I already know where I'm going. The one quote that he said fits exactly what I want to preach on today. And that is back in the 1983 movie called Sudden Impact. He said to one of his superiors who was giving him a tough time, he said, you know what? You're a legend in your own mind. You know, that's where most of God's people are today. That's where most of Christianity is today. You know, and nothing would be more true today in Christianity than that statement. Christians and pastors today claim to be Christ-like and following God and His Word. But if you notice that it's all about the appearance that they give and what they say and, and the things that they surround around them to make them look that way. You don't find very often the character qualities of Christ today. Back in the New Testament, Jesus was faced with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. They were the religious leaders of the world at Jesus' day, and they cared nothing for the truth. They cared nothing for Jesus, but the Bible says, my, 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 they loved the upper seats of the synagogue. They loved to be seen praying in the marketplace. They'd stroll around in their long robes so people could see who they were. And I want to tell you something. I was at the first coming of Christ, but not much has changed within the standard of Christianity today, ready for the second coming. And there's no character qualities of Christ today. There's no humility. Uh, it's all about them. It's all about status. It's all about power. It's all about money. It's all about possessions. There was a famous evangelist back in the 80s in the fundamental circles. And this guy was a, was a, was a, this guy was a con man of con men. He's still alive. He's up in Canada someplace now. He got booted out of the United States. He burned his bridges with everybody here. And he started out with Youth for Christ, which was an organization. I don't even know if it's around anymore. And then he went down and got hooked up with Jerry Falwell at Lynchburg. And then he came out of that as the super evangelist for all churches. This guy thought he was God's answer to everything. There was certainly no humility. There was certainly no attitude of a servant. And he certainly wanted to make himself a reputation. He would boast that every church he went to, he had over 900 convents, convicts. Yeah, he beat in prison. Converts. Well, right off the bat, if a, if a Baptist preacher, as stupid as he is, thinks that, wow, I can have 900 converts, they'd have him in. And, of course, he got to the place where he got so big and he got so important and he got so God just couldn't get along without him that pretty soon he would tell these pastors, 
I won't come and preach in your church unless you can guarantee me a crowd of 5,000 people. In other words, he thought that his, his skills as a preacher, his evangelistic skills were so important to God and so absolutely vital to mankind that it wasn't worth wasting on a crowd less than 5,000 people. Now, I want to tell you something. You know that there was a lot of pastors that thought that was a good thing. There's a lot of Christians that thought that was amazing, that this guy was that good. But you see, the reality check is, is Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, there's a great revival going on in Samaria. And the evangelist there, that's the head evangelist, the guy over there, uh, Philip, and he's preaching. And God lifted the head evangelist out of the greatest revival in the book of Acts and took him to the backside of the desert for one man, that Ethiopian eunuch. See how reality fixes things for you? It's incredible. I remember one time he preached at a church that, that I was at, and he got up and he said that the last church he was at, he had over 800 converts. And everybody in the crowd just, amen, glory to God, and praise the Lord. Da, 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 da. So, Mr. Reality here, <laughs> on Monday morning, I called that church. And I said, hey, we think we're about having so-and-so here. And she says, oh, he'll be a blessing to you. And I said, yeah, uh, we, I heard that he was at your church last week and he, he had over, uh, two weeks ago, and he had over, what, 700, 800 converts? She says, absolutely, it was the most amazing thing we ever have. And I said, wow, that's great. I said, can I ask you a question? That's been two weeks. How many of them have you baptized? Yeah, it got just that quiet. I hadn't baptized any of them. You see, we live in a Christianity where we'll tell you anything you want to hear to get saved, but that's where we leave it. And I want to tell you, the same Bible that demands that you have to get saved to go to heaven is the same Bible that says through obedience after you get saved, you need to get baptized and join a church. Now, I, I know I'm a negative guy. I know I am. It's just it's part of my charm. It's just the way that I am. But I am real suspect if somebody says, I got saved, but then you refuse to get baptized. Because, see, I see the two going together, not you need to be baptized to be saved. But you're going to tell me that you obey God in the obedience for salvation, then you're going to disobey him in baptism because what, you don't want to? Hey, when you get saved, everything in your life was supposed to change. Amen. When you got saved, the I don't want to is supposed to go Amen. when it comes to God. Many of God's people, that's when it comes in. And, and it's a thing where, you know, I, I saw those things. And uh, he was the kind of guy that when he would come into town, and this has happened several times because I know the pastors, he would come into a church and a pastor would put him up in a Holiday Inn. He'd check into the Holiday Inn and not think it was suitable for his demeanor, so he'd check out of the Holiday Inn, go to the most expensive Sheridan in the city, check in, and leave the bill for two hotels. Because he was the kind of guy who just was worth more than a Holiday Inn. Pal, I had to put you in a Motel 6 and see how you got along there. There's no humility. There's no, there's no attitude of a servant today. There's no making yourself of no reputation. You know, one of the key aspects to a false church and, or religion will always be, and this is just something you can learn down through history, will always be the setting up of a religious hierarchy. We all know and love the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, too, that came out of Rome. 
Uh, and now the neo-evangelical and even a lot of the Baptist churches follow that doctrine of the Nicolaitans back in Revelation chapter 2, verse 15, but they all set up a hierarchy over the people. You know, the big guys on the top and the little guys on the bottom, and you have to, you know, you have to serve them. Build my kingdom. Now, in the Dark Ages, this was called the feudal system. In the 1800s, it was called totalitarianism. In 2018, it's called New Testament Christianity. Men who have portrayed themselves as something that they're not, trying to get people to believe that they're just like Christ and just like Paul by what they say about themselves, but when you really look at what's going on in their world. I mean, the church at Corinth is a great example. They were claiming that they were God's church, but the Bible says that they were puffed up with knowledge and they were having issues among themselves. And New Testament Christianity has become a Christian Roman Catholicism with the pastor being the unapproachable pope. You know, and I understand. When I start talking like this, I get it. Some of you just think, you know, where's he coming from? Well, let me, let me tell you, I lived through all of this. I'm not somebody that just fell off the turnip truck yesterday. I've been around the block a couple of times and ran over some fire hydrants. I, I know what I'm talking about. I came out in Kansas City in 1976. That was the heyday of the Baptist move, fundamentalist movement. <clears throat> I was with a church that the pastor uh, wanted all of us to go down to Springfield, Missouri for Fellowship Week at the Baptist Bible Fellowship down there, and that was the that was the Mecca. You talk about the, the Muslims having their holy days. Boy, their Baptists had them too back in that day. And it was graduation at Baptist Bible College, which was the premier, back in the day, was the premier Bible college. It probably ran three or 4,000 students. Today, it's lucky to find two chickens and a duck. I mean, it's dead. But back in the day, it was the place where they went. And I, we would go down there, and, and, and most of the other guys would go down there, and we got spending money, you know. They'd get a hotel, and they'd go eat and do their own thing. And Not me. I always wanted to see that. I'd heard about it all my life. And, boy, I'd go down there, and, man, you talk about the, you talk about the, uh, you, you, you talk about the guys showing up who, at that day, were, were, the, were the great guys in Christianity. I mean, I always looked at it. There were three groups down there. There were, the, there were the big guns, and they were all hobnobbing around, you know, and they were all talking about their churches and what we're going to do this and setting the course for all Christianity. And uh, they were the big guns of the, of, the, of the fellowship, you know. I mean, these guys were, these were, these were the next to the gods. Then you had the wannabes. And those are the little pastors that would never get to that status but always wanted to pretend they could by hanging out with the big guys. And then you had the worker ants. And they're the ones that would come there and they were good people and did all the work, but uh, it, was a, it was an incredible thing to see. And I watched how that, that they, it was nothing more than religious politics up against worldly politics. You had the big guys on the top who didn't care about the guys in the middle, wouldn't give them the time of day. And then you had all the little worker ants over here who really did all the work but never got any credit for it. And all the big guys took all the credit. It was incredible. It was incredible. And uh, it was one of those things when you stood down there, you, you know, everybody thought they were standing in the presence of greatness. I thought it was the biggest hypocrisy you could ever be in in your life. 
all these guys talking about how they're great churches. They all had churches of four or 5,000 people. And those four or 5,000 congregations were built on the backs of those little people. Now, when the little people got burned out and failed, then the big guys blamed the little guys because they weren't spiritual enough. Nobody discipled anybody. Nobody helped anybody. When you got saved, you got slapped on the back and you got thrown into the ministry and you survived or you didn't survive. That's how it worked. I, I was there. I saw it. And these pastors, much like today, most of them, not everybody, but most of them, they lived in mansions that their people could never afford. They enjoyed a lifestyle that their people could never have. And, you know, he, he through his own self-adoration, you know, looked at himself as, how do these people get along without me? He would hobnob with the elite while everybody else just sat at his feet. If you had a lot of money in this church, you were a deacon just like that or you were put on some important board or you were given some real responsibility because the pastor realized that if you got a lot of money, he wants you close to him. And if you were just a common ordinary folk like us and you didn't get anywhere with him, he didn't even know your name. And through all that, he, he actually believed everything that all the other fellowship guys and all that everybody said about him. And every one of those guys lost touch with the reality of not only who he was, but the people that God gave him. You, you know, you, 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 you think that uh, you, you have all the answers, and yet at the same time, you package those answers into things that you charge people for so you can make money off of it. And you simply take everything that God has given us freely and then try to repackage it so you can make money off of it. You know, going back, we had our Lincoln Bible study uh, this last Tuesday night, and we were in Matthew 21. And I remember told them, it's a great chapter, Matthew 21. And it's where Jesus goes into the temple for the second time to throw out the money changers. And I told him, I said, two times in the Bible, he goes into the temple and he throws out the money changers. The first time is in, at the beginning of his ministry, and he throws them out there, and he says, you have made my father's house of den of thieves. Second time, three years later, right before he goes into Jerusalem to be crucified, he throws them out again. But this time he says, you have made my house. And I told them it's an interesting study to see why over here it's my father's house, but now three years later it's my house. Oh, it's a great study. And he goes in, and, and what they're doing back then is they're, they're, they're taking advantage of the people. They know that the people got to come into the temple to make sacrifices, so they've set up their little booths selling chickens, ducks, pigeons, and everything that they need for the sacrifice. And they're charging an exorbitant amount of money, and, and they're, 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 not, they're, they're taking the house of God, which is for sacrifice, and they're, they're actually more interested in the money they're making off the animals that are being sacrificed than they're ever caring about the sacrifice. And when Jesus comes in, he overthrows the tables. He kicks everybody out. You know, this idea that he was just a lowly little guy that when you shook his hand, it felt like picking up a dead squid. He was a man's man. And he went into that temple, and he, I bet that was a sight to see, kicking over them tables and throwing those guys out. 
in the name of Jesus, of course. And so there's a great verse here, and it says, after he throws them out, in Matthew 21, 14, it says, and then the, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I think that's one of the most amazing verses anywhere in the Bible because it says that the religious leaders of the day were only concerned about taking advantage and getting and making what they could make off the people. When they got kicked out and Jesus took over, that's when he started healing the lame and the blind. This church is here to heal the lame and the blind. Every church's concept fundamentally should be that. The idea coming in someplace that a church exists for big bucks and big this and big that and all the money in the world we can raise to do all these kind of great things to make us look great, that is somebody who has lost the touch of reality. Any church, certainly this church, is here for one reason. You're lame and you're blind and we all have issues in our lives and this church has to be here for that. And the moment the scribes and the Pharisees got kicked out and the money changers got kicked out and Jesus came in, it went away from the big production and became just for the lame and the blind. And then, verse 15, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosea and the son of David, they were sore displeased. I guess you were. That's like going into a big mega church today and getting up in the pulpit and you get to be the featured speaker and you up after your King James Bible will preach for two hours on the perfect, inspired, verbal, plainly inspired word of God. You'll tick them off. But that's what's needed to be done. You see, churches need to be a reality check. You don't need me to come in here and tell you how wonderful you are, though I think you're wonderful. I think you're the greatest people on the planet. But if that's all you ever heard, how great you were and how great you are, you know what? It would ruin you in time. Amen. Because as good as you are, as great as you are, let's be honest, that goodness and grace is, is only because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done in your life. If you think it's because of you or me, you're in trouble. So I get it. But everybody needs a reality check. And when Jesus went in and kicked them out, he gave them a reality check. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests, they didn't like it. And they said to him, another great concept. And he said unto, and, and they, and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, have you not ever read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise? You know what he said? He just simply said, another reality check. All your doctor degrees, all your scribes, all your Pharisees, and all your higher education, you missed the boat. You got to be a little child to get the truth. That's a reality check. We don't like reality checks. And, you know, it's simply taking everybody that God gave you and, 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 and seeing them as God sees them. Listen, any pastor on this planet, any Christian that displays themselves any higher or better than their people that God gave them, you're a fool. And you're wise in your own conceits. 
There isn't a pastor on this planet that isn't, is just a sinner saved by God's grace, no better, no worse than the people God gave him. And you go back in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, and you find a model for that, you'll find that's exactly true. Now, the fact that he, he self-adorns himself with a B.A. or a M.A. or a Ph.D. or a Th.D. and he's a doctor, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't make him any smarter or any holier. In fact, just the opposite. All he does is get educated out of his intelligence. And the fact that he's educated himself to impress those around him with a doctor or a Ph.D. and he's puffed himself up to set his own religious hierarchy uh, uh, doesn't change the fact that he's a sinner just like you and I. Years ago when I, uh, you had to see Jesus sometime in, in Matthew chapter 23, what he said about these guys. Years ago when I, again, when I was getting into the ministry, we had a class on the eight rules of pastoring. And it, 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 I never forgot them. Eight rules that a pastor to follow. Rule number one of the pastor is never lose touch with your people. Rule number two was never set yourself up over them. Rule number three one, uh, you, you pastor to serve them. They don't, you don't pastor so they can serve you. And when you serve each other in the right perspective, then you both wind up serving God in the right perspective. Rule number four was you, you, uh, you, you, you build the people God gave you. You don't use the people that God gave you to build your monument to yourself. Rule number five, it's not getting smarter that makes you a good pastor. It's getting dumber. Because the smarter you are, the more you think you know. And the greatest lesson you can ever learn, that whatever years you spend in the Bible, whether it's 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years, you need to come to the conclusion at the end of that time that all you know of the Bible only shows you how much you don't know of the Bible. God reigns in our lives through our inabilities, through our stupidity. Not our education. I told you last week, when he picked Moses to deliver the nation of Israel, he picked the one guy that if you were looking for a pastor of a church or put in a Bible college someplace, everybody would have passed him over. He didn't speak well. He didn't have good confidence. He was afraid to talk. He was afraid to go before Pharaoh. And God said, that's the guy that I want. And it was through his weakness that God used him to be great. We come around like we think because of what we know and what we have and how great we are. God, God's sure lucky to have us. God doesn't need you or me for 15 seconds. Amen. We need him. Rule number six was there are no experts when it comes to the Bible, life, or ministry. Just students on different levels helping each other get to where they need to get. Rule number seven was uh, never send your people into ministry. You lead them into ministry. The rule is simply a pastor is the first boots on the ground, the last boots off. That's the rule number one of leadership, by the way. And rule number eight was never, I mean never, never put yourself in a position to take advantage of your people. Now, the Bible says in Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 14, that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. As a pastor, your church will be exactly what you built them to be. And it's the same way in a family. Same way in a family. A family will be exactly what the father has built them to be, just like a church will be whatever the pastor's built them to be. They will be what you uh, are, are like with the Bible, your spiritual reflection, whether it's good or it's bad. 
whatever you, uh, whatever you are, uh, in whether it's your family as a father or a church as a pastor, uh, you'll either be a legend in your own mind to your family or you'll teach your family to follow the legend that will change their minds. But that's the way it goes. Back in Proverbs chapter 31, you have the story of the virtuous woman. We'll spend a lot of time on that one and take that one apart when we get there, probably 12 or 13 years from now. But Proverbs 31, 28 says, her children arise up and call her blessed. Now, as we find it in the text, that's the, your own children in your family. And this is what Mother's Day is all about. So now we've made this message a Mother's Day message so we can move on. <laughs> It's a thing where that, that's, that's what happens today. You're a mom. You're a good mom. Your kids rise up and, and call you blessed. They thank you for whatever you do. And, and many of you, I get that. Many of you don't have that in a physical mom or dad, so you have it in a spiritual mom or dad. I get it. But it's also talking about our spiritual children, the people that you have invested your life with the people that you have took in and invested your life with them and helped them and give them what they needed. Recognize that, uh, you know, as God's people uh, and God used them in their life and those people see that. You know, many of you have invested your life so, with so many people in this church. You have a reputation of building people. You through your investment. I, I always like it when I'm work, talking with somebody and I say, you know what, we got this or this or this. And I said, I think this will really help you. And you'll say, I really want that. Could I get so-and-so to do that for me? There's no greater thing in this world than somebody to ask if you'll teach them the Bible. And it happens all the time. Because of the investment and the and the and you've made in, in, in so many people that you've just poured yourself into, and, and so many of you have done that. And people look up and today they, they they recognize the reality of this truth. They would not be here today and have what they have if you would not have invested your life in them. And you're not just doing it here, you're doing it across the country. You're doing it wherever you go. The people, your family, your friends, people that God has put in your life. The reality for you is you see them and you understand God brought them to me for what purpose? To take advantage of them, to get what I can get from them, or for me to give to them what they desperately need. Oh, I'll tell you, it's an incredible, it's an incredible concept. Building those areas in your life that are the character qualities of Christ that everybody pretends they have. They want to give the illusion. But when it comes right down and you look, there's no humility. There's no attitude of a servant. Now look at verse 3 and 4. It says, A stone is heavy and sand weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both. It says in verse 4, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous. But who is able to stand before envy? Now, this is a, a great insight into issues in life that we'll all have to deal with. Now, the heaviness of verse 3 will be obviously the weight of any issue that somebody puts on you or you put on yourself or you have to deal with in life. Like some heavy burden that someone has to bear. And You know, we find people, we've all had that at some point in our life and we understand that. 
Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before it. There is the weights of life that bog you down, that hold you down, that you can't run the race and do what God's called you to do. And I think verse 4 is a great verse because it shows the order of how and where all problems will start. Look at the progression laid out for you. And this is all what a fool does. First thing, wrath is cruel and heavy. Second, anger is outrageous. And third, but who is able to stand before envy? Then it says envy will be worse than both wrath and anger. You know why? Because that's, that's a powerful verse for it will show us that the root issue of a fool when he has a problem it will be rooted in envy. Why, envy was the original sin in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 with the devil and God. I know it was pride, but it started with envy. And then it got into pride. He wanted to be like the Most High. That's envy. He was envious of what God had. He did the exact same mistake that we do. I mean, Lucifer was number two. He had everything he could want. He was over everything that God created, and that wasn't enough. He makes the same mistake we all make. We never focus on all the things that God gave us. We just focus on what we don't have. And we lose sight. No, no, no. We lose the reality of who we are and what we have and what God has given us. And if we just spend our day walking through that, we'd be the happiest guy on the planet. No, 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 no. We don't focus on our family, all the good things he's done, all the blessings he has. You're not in a hospital. You're not in a cancer ward. You're not there. You're not blind. You're not, you didn't lose a leg. You got a good house. You got a car. You got a good job. You got, basically, you had three meals today, some of you four or five, and that was a problem. But never mind. You lose sight of that, and you focus on, I want that. I know how it started. And it will be the root of all sin after Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the plains that were great for flock. He saw all the cattle that he had and it wasn't enough. He had to come up with a plan to get more cattle. Everything that we do, we lose sight the reality of what God has done for us and given us and what we have and we just got to focus all the time on what we don't have. You see that something that somebody has or even is, their ability to be what God wants them to be and you, you know, and you, you try to outdo them so you can look good too. I know this. You ever been around a person and it, I, I see it all the time. I just kind of laugh at it. There are people out there that you're going to work with or be a friends with that when you get in a conversation, no matter what you say you've done or somebody else says they've done, they always chime in and they've done it better. <laughs> they always, whatever the equation is, they got the answer. And whenever somebody gives an answer, they got a better answer. It seems that people and pastors just can't seem to be their own man, happy with who they are. We're always envious of others. With it's always drives them, and, and, and you know it's a quite incredible thing to watch. I remember back in I, I've told you about this several times. Back in the first go round of the mega churches, 
We're in the second round today, and now it's all in the evangelical crowd. But back in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, it was in the Baptist fundamentals crowd. And, and people don't see that. They don't know that it didn't work back then. It ain't going to work today. And back then, Jack Hiles. Nobody even knows who Jack Hiles anymore. Hammond, Indiana. Back in the 70s, he was running 10,000 in Sunday school. He was the poster child for successful churches. Uh, and, you know, and Jack Hiles was a great preacher. He really was a great preacher. I mean, he was a tyrant to work for, but he was a great preacher. He was a terrible pastor, but he was a great preacher. I mean, boy, this guy could preach the paint off the wall. I am not kidding you. And everybody looked at his church and wanted, but what they didn't see inside was the fact that, you know how he got running 10,000? He was in Hammond, Indiana. On his bus routes, he had over 300 buses. 300, a bus ministry of 300 buses. And those buses would start at 5.30 in the morning and go 100 miles out to bring people back to church. They weren't bringing there because they wanted to get saved. They brought them all in. Have you ever been around 600 bus kids? Are you kidding me? They didn't want to teach them anything about God or the Bible. They wanted to count them because they wanted to keep the prestige of heaven. And everybody in the Baptist world wanted to be like Jack Hiles. So they had Sunday school campaigns. They had special days where you'd bring all your people. They had a friend day. They had a heaven Sunday. They had all these great things. Hey, I was there. I was in the meetings where they sat down for hours plotting how we can get a bunch of people to church on Sunday. Did we want to win them to Christ? Did we want to teach them the Bible? Oh, no, no, no. We wanted to be able to stand up and talk about how many we had in church on Sunday. Be like Jack Hiles. The 70s, 80s, Jerry Falwell, Lynchburg, Virginia. Jerry Falwell uh, got involved in politics. He, got, he started really the first TV broadcast of church services on Sunday morning. I mean, there were some of the real weird guys out there, but he was the first fundamental guy. He called it the old-time gospel hour. And the moment he did that, everybody in fundamentalism thought that was the secret to raising a lot of money. Secret to having a lot of people come to church, get a TV ministry. So they did. I mean, church after church after church after church. I, I remember I've been in meetings where they had a, had a fundraising drive to raise $400,000 to buy TV camera equipment and all the stuff, broadcast equipment. They brought a bank guy in who, who took the church's finances with a church bank, and they had a table sit over there, and they asked every family to, 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 to give $5,000. And if you didn't have $5,000, no problem. The bank here will give you a low interest rate that you can get a loan and give that money to the church. I was there. I saw it. And everybody wanted a TV program. Everybody wanted to be on the air. Everybody wanted to be like Jerry Falwell because Jack Hiles back was the guy, and now Jerry Falwell was. And Jerry Falwell on the broadcast had this pulpit. I mean, it was an incredible big pulpit. It was beautiful. It reminded me of the great white throne judgment. God's going to have a pulpit like that. And it was a spectacular pulpit. And he'd preach behind it, made him look powerful, made him look big, you know. I mean, it had a little button on the side that, that you would raise if you had a tall speaker. 
could raise the pulpit up, raise it down. Here, you just... I like this one. It's got lead in the front, so if you shoot at me, I can just crawl right underneath there. And, <laughs> and cannons come out here. Anyway, but so every you, you guessed it. Every Baptist church wanted a pulpit like his. I mean, they were making those big white pulpits, and every church had one because they thought it made you look prestigious, made you look like powerful. And then around the 1960s and 70s and the 80s, along with that, rose the God of Education. And now every Baptist preacher wanted to get a doctor's degree because education was the way to go. And now you weren't anybody if you weren't a doctor of theology. And it takes a lot to get an earned doctor of theology. I mean, it's a waste of time and money, but if you want one, there's a route you've got to go. But they found out a better way. See, they worked a little deal with the Bible colleges. Bob Jones University, Tennessee Temple, Baptist Bible College. Back in the day. They made a little unwritten deal that, okay, uh, Canton Baptist Temple, Harold Henniger was a doctor. Bob Johnson, the music director, was a doctor. But they didn't earn their doctorates. They got honorary doctorates. You know how you get, you know how you get, but who cares? When you introduced a guy, you didn't say, here's honorary doctor. It was doctor. Doctor so-and-so. We're going to have speak now, doctor. I want to introduce you to, going to preach you tonight, doctor, Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. It wasn't. He don't, not a real doctor. He, he got an honorary. Um, he, he didn't have an honorary. You know, it's doctor because that's all you needed. If you were a doctor, you were somebody. If you were not a doctor, you weren't anybody. And when you went to a candidate for a church, if you were a doctor, you beat the guy out that wasn't. doesn't matter if the guy knew the Bible a thousand times better and was the greatest show runner on the planet. They weren't caring about that. It was, are you a doctor? Where'd you go to school? And the game worked like this. I'll take Bob Jones University because that's the one I'm familiar with. Canton Baptist Temple, Dr. Harold Henniger, Dr. Bob Johnson. Bob Johnson went to Bob Jones University. So here's how it worked. You brought all your young people as they grew up. They wanted to go to Bible college. You channeled them to Bob Jones University. You sent them all down there. Those kids go down there to pay the tuition, $10,000, $20,000. You send down 100 kids. You send down 50 kids a year. I mean, you got a big church. You got 2,000 people in your church. Kids grow up. Most of them want to get a Christian education. Where do you send them? You send them to Bob Jones University. And let's so face it, Bob Jones University looked like the place to go. Clean cut kids. I mean, when, they, when they'd send a singing group around. Where, and Penny knows. Penny was in, wasn't in that one. But where were you? What one were you in? Live action. Live action. Dead action after a while. But Penny, <laughs> Penny was in it. She knows what I'm saying is true. It was all choreographed. They send her, they pick the best kids who could sing and send them to your church. And they'd put on a concert. And, and people would think it was wonderful. They'd have 20, 15 of the sharpest looking kids, clean cut, that you ever saw in your life. And parents would sit down there and say, I want my kid to be like that. If I send my kid to that school, they'll turn out like that. And it was all a sham. I'm a reality guy. I, I saw the same people go to different churches. And it was, they, 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 here's how it worked. You'd have five guys, five girls because they wanted to attract guys. And it was always the prettiest girls. You'll never get guys coming to your Bible card with ugly girls singing. <laughs> and the guys were all good looking guys because girls aren't going to go down there if they're all doofuses. 
not sure what a doofus is, but they're not going to go. And so the, they would sing together, and then the guys, would, the, guys would, the guys would sing, and the girls would go like this, all the girls in unison. And then the guys, the girls would sing, and all the guys would go. It was choreographed. They'd have somebody give their testimony, and they'd cry. It was amazing, because I saw them do it in another church. She cried at the same spot. Same testimony. You got a cry button on your pants. You just push it, and tears start coming out. It's fake. It was phony. It was the phoniest thing you ever saw in your life. But parents said, I want my kid to be like that. Yeah, I want my kid to have a cry button on his pants. I want my kid. And so, and the pastor would get up and he'd say, now this, and they'd just send those kids down there. And after they got, what, 100, 200? I don't know what the magic number was. But then when you got, hit that magic number, you know like the big wheel that you turn on the TV program? When your number comes up, they bring you down for graduation. And you speak graduation. And you know what happens then? They crown upon you an honorary doctor degree. Doctor of the defense of the truth. You wear a robe. You wear a little goofy hat. And they confer upon you doctor, an honorary doctor's degree. And the whole Christian world goes, oh, wow. That's the way it was. You traded kids for your degree. Don't tell me I was there. Don't tell me I, I, I saw it. I watched it happen. It happened there. It happened everywhere. And that was the game they played. Why? So a guy could stand in a pulpit and gain credibility with all the other pastors and around his people that they thought because he now had a doctor's degree behind his name, he was more holy than he was before he got it. That God now recognized him. Come on up here and stand with me. Now you're a doctor. I'm still Jesus. <laughs> you're a doctor. No, it was the goofiest thing you ever saw. It was the reality of this verse. It, it, it became a joke. It became, but it, what happened was they lost all touch with reality. It was a show. I had a guy one time, he, 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 he's a Christian psychologist and he's, he's got an earned doctor degree in it. Okay, but he's a pompous idiot. I haven't seen him for years. We went to lunch one time, and I don't think he heard, he thought I heard him say this. Now, this guy was a nobody. He, he was an absolute nobody. He wasn't a good counselor. I wouldn't let him counsel my lab on, he just, he, he's terrible. But he was, but he's, he fit the mold. And we went to lunch one time, right here in, in, in uh, um, Lee Summit. And, and we're waiting there for a table, and the waitress comes up, and we start to walk to the table, and he goes over to the woman who's the hostess, and he says, I'm Dr. So-and-so, if there's any calls for me. <laughs> now, come on, who on this planet is going to call you? Amen. What, did your oxycodone run out? <laughs> who's going to call you? But see, nobody was going to call him. Hey, and you know what's even worse? He knew nobody was going to call it. He wanted her to know he was a doctor because now she's thinking, ooh. The only one that was disappointed was the waitress because she found out he was a doctor and saw the crappy tip he left her. 
I'm telling you, it, it was a game. It's always a game. It goes to your head. It gets you to, out of touch with reality that you really think you're something special. I want you to know something. Everybody, including this preacher this morning, ain't nothing special about us. The only thing special about you and me is you were washed in the blood of Christ and you're, you're, you're living in the shadow of the cross and you're going to heaven someday. If it was on your own merit, we'd all be in hell this morning screaming for a drink of water. Boy, we sure, we sure get off of it, don't we? I'm telling you. And you know, it was, it, it was all a show. And instead of the world looking at Christianity like it once did, and the world speaking well of it, and see, I know you don't know that. I, I mean, you're all, most of you young, a couple of you older ones maybe around here, but, but most of you young ones, all you've ever seen is the garbage. You know, over in England, when George Mueller was alive in the latter part of the middle 1800s and the early 1900s, you know, he had the prestige of every unsaved person over there, and he started orphanages for kids uh, in England. And he prayed into existence. I don't know how many orphanages. He was one of the most godly men, and everybody wanted to help him because he, was, he had the characteristics of Christ. D.L. Moody had the great Moody Church in Chicago. Do you understand that the Chicago Tribune and the New York Times printed every word of his messages on the Monday morning newspaper because they thought that he had a value? There was, a, there was an issue after he was dead where Chicago had went into deep problems and the unsaved New York Times put a picture of Chicago, uh, uh, Chicago Tribune, put a picture of the city of Chicago with a shadow over it like a cloud, like the face of Moody. And in the, New and in the Chicago Times it said, what this town needs is another Moody. Try that today. Billy Sunday. I told this story the other night when somebody asked a question about booze, that when he died, his body laid in state in Madison Square Garden. <clears throat> and for two days... Over 2 million people came by. A New York Times reporter covered his death, and he stood there and wrote in the paper that almost every person that came by that casket said to themselves out loud or somebody else, I'd be in hell if it wasn't for that man's preaching. He saved my family. He saved my, my marriage. He, he got me out of alcohol. Over and over. The world was reporting that. David Livingston, the great missionary that went to the heart of Africa that nobody heard from him for two or three years. Who cares? The New York Times sent Stanley, a reporter, to Africa, paid his expenses, got him a guide to go into the interior of Africa to find out what happened to Dr. Livingston. Are you kidding me? From which our Quamus wrote, hmm, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He found him. Today, churches, pastors, and Christianity, it's a joke. The world scoffs at us. It makes fun of your money-grabbing ways and looks at how you really are a crook, using God and his church to fleece people so you can live like a king, and all the time you're pretending to your stupid people that you're like Paul and you're like Jesus. Well, let me tell you something, friend. The only stocks and bonds that Paul had was on his hands and on his feet. Quite a difference. Now, now look at verse 5 here. 
Oh, I love this one. <coughs> Preaching's about to start. <coughs> Open rebuke is better than secret love. Oh, do I like this one. What a great truth. Christianity, Christians, millions of them, who claim to be saved and love God in his word, but will never take a stand for it publicly. I call them spiritual homosexual Christianity. They live their life in the closet and never want to come out. The Christians who their theme is don't ask, don't tell. They're never going to come out of the closet and say, I'm really a Christian. I'm going to take a stand for the word of God. If you don't like it, that's tough. Never one time have they ever stood up and defended what God has done for them and what God has given them. You know, there's a great example that's in the Bible found in John chapter 3. And most people never see this part of the story because we use it for soul winning all the time and there's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> but I want you to see something here. John chapter 3 says, There was a, name of the, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, <clears throat> for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. <clears throat> that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto you that you must be born again. Uh, uh, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and now heareth the sound thereof, cannot tell us whence it cometh, and whether it goeth, and so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knoweth not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak, and we do know, and testify of what we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Wow, that's a powerful deal. Now, there, there's, a, there's, a secret, there's a secret agent Christian right there. Everybody else is getting clobbered. Everybody else, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're just killing them and they're just beating them up to beat the band. But not Nicodemus. No, no. He comes to Jesus by night under the cloak of darkness so nobody would see him. Why? Because he's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. And he's playing it safe. He, verse 2, he believes who Christ is. He knows that thou art teacher come from God. He called him rabbi. He knows exactly who he is. <clears throat> and boy, the Lord gets right to the point, doesn't he? He doesn't say, well, it's about time somebody recognized who I am, Nicodemus. Thank you very much. Yes, I am a teacher. From he never even answered him. You know what he said? He said, Nicodemus, except your nation get born again, it has no chance. And that born again is found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and again in Romans chapter 9 and, verse, uh, 9 and chapter 11. At verses 10 and 11, he says, you know our witness. You know what we stand for. Why haven't you declared that witness? I'll tell you why. Because you're a Pharisee. You're a ruler of the Jews, and you'll lose your, you'll lose your status. You'll lose your position as a religious leader. They'll get thrown out of the fellowship. You'll be called a heretic. Oh, there's lots of Christians who believe Jesus, and I believe you're truly saved. You're just a coward when it comes to standing for the truth. 
Boy, the great rebuke in verse 10, Jesus says, Art thou a master of Israel and you don't know these things? You mean to tell me you're saved and on your way to heaven and you don't know you're supposed to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ? Instead of standing for the world? You have a secret love for God, but you never take an open rebuke for him. You don't want to lose your status. You don't want to lose your friends. You don't want to be labeled a heretic. You don't want people to look at you like there's something wrong with you. There is something wrong with you. You've been saved and born again, and you're no longer part of this world. Act like it. We today have a a non-confrontational Christianity. The theme is don't rock the boat. Let's just all get along. Let's just, all right, we don't see eye to eye on this. Let's just agree to disagree. You're out of your mind. If they don't AI, somebody's right and somebody's wrong. Let's get in the book and find out who is. Let's get along with everybody today. Now, I'll tell you what, and this is my own problem. I get it. I can deal with a lot of people in a lot of different areas, and I have no problem with it. I never judge people. I'll always be there to try to help them. I don't care. I've said it many times. I don't care what you've done. It doesn't matter to me as long as you want to do what's right. I mean, there are a couple exceptions to that. But in most cases, you know what? Um, if you're, you want to do what's right, I'm here for you. I don't sit around and think about all the things you did or this, that, and point fingers at it. That just There's no profit in that. We can't change the past, but we can sure shape the future together. And let's just try to do that. But I want to tell you something. When it comes to Christians who are afraid to take a public stand on biblical issues and they play the Christianity and the world go together game, you stay out of my way. I, I just, I, I, my Bible says, uh, my Bible says in Proverbs 17, 17, the brother is born for adversity. Amen. I want men and women around me that can take it on their shoulders, take it on the chin, and we stand and let it come. I'm not interested in playing games with anybody. I'm interested in the truth. When I went into the ministry years and years ago, Dr. Bob Johnson, who got his degree from Bob Jones University, I might add a little bit later on when he got out of a Baptist church and went into another church, they took his honorary doctor back from him. Nice deal. You give it to me, but I'll take it back from you. I was ready to come out to Kansas City. And I realized I had a lot of rough edges and there's a lot of things that I needed to learn. I, I take that, I get that. He sat me down one day and, and, and Bob and Mel never got along. Bob did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. He was, he was Bob Jones University, up, just everything in his life. Everything, his kids went there, he went there. He thought that that was where the New Jerusalem was. And of course, Mel was anti-Bible uh, college, and he was saying, just train him right here, just like we have. And uh, he sat me down. He knew I was coming out to Kansas City, going to go to work for Truman Dollar, and they were good friends. And, and uh, he said, Bob, he says, I want to help you. And I said, well, Bob, I appreciate that. I need some help. He says, look, you're going out there. You're going to a big church. You got the chance of a lifetime. He says, but I want to tell you, you got to change some things. And I said, well, Bob, I'm all for changing. What, what do you think I need to change? And he said, you can't preach the way you preach. He says, when you go into those big churches, he says, it's all about results. And he says, you will not make it with your preaching because your preaching will not produce results. And, I, and he went on and on. I said, well, Bob, I appreciate it. But I said, you better understand something right now. I may make it or I may not make it out there. That's immaterial. But I'm not interested in results. I'm interested in the truth. And if the truth can't produce the results, then I don't want the results to get produced without the truth. And that was the end of our conversation. And it's one of those things where, you know, that's just, 
That's just where it's at. I want to tell you something. This is my own personal deal. You can strike this off the tape if you want. Don't put this note down if you don't want to. But let me tell you something. If there are not people saved and lost out there that hate you for your stand on the book and aren't your open enemies because you love a book and stand for a book and preach the book, there's something wrong with your Christianity. Amen. It's just that simple. I've seen families that a dad had to take a stand against a family for the truth to do the right thing. And it cost him some great things. Or a, or a wife cost her some great things. Or a couple together cost them great things. But you know what? There comes a time in your life when you know what is right, you've got to take a stand. And there may be severe consequences that come along with it. That doesn't change the stand. It just doesn't. And I realize we all have a tendency to, to want to not be, especially the world we live in, you know, we don't want to have conflict. Let me tell you something. You can't get into Christianity to the level that God wants you and not have conflict. Now, you talk about Jesus and Paul. You want to be like them? They were hated and had problem, conflict all their lives. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13 says, Let us go therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Are you? Are you in your nice little safe, cushy thing like Nicodemus? Well, you get along with unsaved people. They open your refrigerator. They see the same thing in yours. They see in theirs. They're fine with you. Oh, yeah, you're a Christian. You go to church. You just, you're not radical about it. You're not, you don't get over the top about it. Boy, you go to a Chiefs game and, and, and they make a touchdown or win the game. Then let's see radical displayed. You can scream and yell down there. You go to a Royals game and they win a game and you go nuts, ballistic, and everybody's Now, I know the beer loosens you up a little bit there. I get that. Well, I'll tell you what. You know what? Somebody, you know what? A, you, they say, don't be a fanatic. You know what the word fan comes from? It comes from the word fanatic. God's people need to be a little more fanatical about what God has given you. I have no use in my life for cowards. Never have. Cowards get people killed, physically and spiritually. One time years ago, when I was in the Army, we were doing a jump out 1,200 feet out of a C-130. And there was like uh, 18 guys in our stick. And I think I was, a stick is 18 guys. And I was, think I was six or seven in the line. And the guy behind me, three or four, was a young kid, and he panicked. And he started yelling and screaming and crying that he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Jump master, ugh, they were incredible guys. Jump master came back, unhooked him pulled him out of that line, rolled him up to the front of the line, snapped him in and said, then you better jump first so when you get killed, you don't take anybody with you and booted him out the door. <laughs> See, cowards will hesitate at the crucial moment that life and death will hang on. And God's people need to be, they need to know what they're doing they need to know when to do it. They need to know how to do it. And they need to be able to take their stand in doing it. I mean, this is a, this is a great series of verses today for all of us. We all need a reality check. After all, God has given us. After all, we have. After everything that he's worked out in your life and my life and the things that, that he's done for us. You know, we need to, we need to keep, uh, we need to keep our perspective as a Christian. We need to keep our position as a Christian. We need to keep our purpose as a Christian and keep the reality of who we really are in Christ, not some legend in our own mind. Now around here, 
somebody comes into our church that hasn't been, you know, maybe just first gets saved or whatever, and we have what we call discipleship. And discipleship, you know, is basic lessons that we have. And there's, there's four basic goals with discipleship. You know, I think there's 10 lessons, and you would think that you're done discipling when you hit lesson 10. You're not. You're done discipling when these four goals are accomplished. It may take you forever to do it. Goal number one is to establish you, obviously, in the Word of God. Goal number two is to establish you, obviously, with other people. Goal number three is to establish you within our church. But goal number four is to bring it all back around and establish you in ministry. And you see this happening all the time. And you're not done to those four goals or accomplished in that person's life. Well, a while back, we, we, we developed a discipleship two, which I think is perfect match for discipleship one. And it's based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And it talks about the seven things that changed in you the day you got saved. And I can't think, I can't think of any greater lesson than one and then two that when properly applied will keep you from ever um, falling into the issues of Proverbs chapter 27, verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. Because it'll always keep you what happened, what changed about you. The moment you got saved, seven things now change. And if you keep focus on those seven things, you'll never lose touch of reality. It's when you just get saved and then you start moving out and you get a little Bible here, a little Bible there, and then pretty soon the world starts pulling you back or you get a girlfriend or a boyfriend that pulls you off or you get making a lot of money or you have a lot of things and you just can't get past it all and they start pulling you off, pulling you off, and pretty soon you actually think that you're a good Christian never coming to church. You actually think you're a good Christian never being a servant to anybody. You actually think, well, I'm a Christian now. I've been saved for, what, 10, 15, 20 years? Never discipled anybody, never invested my life in anybody. But boy, look at my house. Look at my garage. Look at my job. Look at all that I have. Look what I have invested in. You've lost touch with reality, pal. Getting the reality and keeping the reality of who you really are in Christ Jesus. Getting the right perspective which will lead you to putting yourself in the right position, which will always keep you with the right purpose. And when you understand these seven things, then it'll always add a fourth one to it here. You'll always have the right passion. That's the problem. Herb preached on it a couple of weeks ago. We're too passionate with the wrong things. There's one passion that should be over and above every other thing we do, and that is our relationship with the Lord Jesus. So you can see how these verses in Proverbs just fit. You can see from my perspective, and I know I just gave you a little inside glimpse at it, but boy, I've seen this thing work for almost 50 years. I've seen how it has, it has worked its way through and destroyed churches, destroyed families, destroyed people, destroyed pastors. How did they actually believe that getting a grandioso degree behind your name really makes you closer to God. And, and I know, I, I, I've heard all the arguments. I've heard guys say, well, we do that because it opens doors for us that we normally wouldn't have. Gee, I may be wrong about this, but I thought that was the Holy Spirit of God's job, no matter what degree you had behind your name. I must have just picked that up someplace. You see how we rationalize out of our reality? If you need a degree behind your name to override the Holy Spirit of God working in your life, you're in trouble. Yeah. 